understand it as part of the overall fight against racism and xenophobia. Otherwise, we're going nowhere. And whatever hopes might be awakened by the Biden inauguration has to be turned into action and into effective policies. And it's up to us. All right. Well, Camilla Perez-Bustillo, as always, we appreciate the good information. Uh, we urge you to stay safe right now. You're talking to us from Taipei, Taiwan, I think, visiting professor there of human rights and social justice at the National Taiwan University's College of Law. Thank you, Camilo. Please stay safe. Safe. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Dennis. We'll stay in touch. All, All right. Bye-bye now. wraps it up for another edition of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Our roving producer and producer of Flashpoints in Espanol is Miguel Gavilan Molina. Our technical director is Mike Biggs. For more information about the show, to listen to or download archived episodes, log on to flashpoints.net or visit our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com forward slash flashpoints. For questions or comments about Flashpoints, you can contact Dennis at DennisJBernstein at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. organization planning a virtual event? Looking for a media co-sponsorship? Then contact KBU today. KBU's community media co-sponsorships provide free on-air promos for local nonprofits and small organizations, as well as a listing on our website's community calendar and promotions on our social media. For more information and to apply, visit kibu.fm slash co-sponsorships today. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Lonnie Eckhart Dodd. She is a native Hawaiian mother, farmer, educator, and water rights advocate from Maui, Hawaii. She farms taro and other traditional Hawaiian crops with her family on their farm, Ola Mau Farms. The farm serves as a classroom for school children enrolled in a Hawaiian immersion school, which is a food way for the Hawaiian community seeking to return to a traditional diet. It's also a seed bank for heritage Hawaiian taro varieties. Lani is also a member of a social and environmental justice advocacy group that is involved in an ongoing legal battle to restore the flow of four streams in central Maui. Welcome, Lonnie. It's so great to have you with me. Aloha, Melinda. Aloha from the Ahupua'a Waiehu on the island of Maui in the occupied nation of Hawaii. Aloha. Well, those of us who live on the mainland probably think about Hawaii as being this tropical island paradise. Maybe we go as tourists and we enjoy a luau, we see native Hawaiian dances, we enjoy the beaches, the beautiful scenery, but we probably don't question the food that we're served, where it comes from, and some of the real challenges faced by Hawaiian island natives and people who have come to live there and call it home. I was first informed about some of the problems with regard to food on the Hawaiian Islands when 9-11 happened, and I learned that some of the food just couldn't come to the islands because of the problem with the ships coming in during that crisis period. And now we're facing another crisis period with COVID, and to be so dependent on imported food when you're an isolated set of islands to me is something that we should be talking about. 
Tell me, how did you become interested in food work and food sovereignty? Well, I guess that could be a long story, and there's a lot of facets to that question and the answer. As a Kanaka Oivi or indigenous person who's ancestrally tied to Hawaii, we relate to land, we call it aina, as kin. And so having a relationship with the land is just part of our identity and our culture and our practice as one. So I've always had a garden. My mom always had a garden. So we always had some amount of food. But I really became interested in farming and the issues of food security and availability of healthful and safe foods when I became a mother. Mm. Yeah. When my partner was pregnant with our first son, we were being mindful about the foods that she ate in order for our baby to develop and be healthy. But then we started to plan ahead, so we started growing taro. And coincidentally, the gestation period for a baby and the growth cycle for the taro are the same. And it was important for us that when our child was born, that his first food be poi. So if we talk about food in Hawaii, I think it's important that we talk about poi because it's the staple food and preferred food of of this place and the people of this place. Mm. Many women become interested in food and the environment around the time that they either become parents or children come into their lives. And it's just this way, I think, that we have of wanting to nurture and protect those that we love. So it makes total sense to me. I'm curious about native Hawaiian food. So terms like poi, that's so foreign to me. Tell me about some of the native Hawaiian foods and what is poi exactly? Yeah. So poi is taro. It's a tuber and it is cleaned and steamed and mashed and then fermented and then mixed with poi before consumption. And this was the preferred food that all of Hawaii ate for thousands of years before Western contact, every meal. We also ate a lot of breadfruit, sweet potatoes, bananas. Fish was our main source of protein as well as seaweeds for iron and vitamins. But although Crops like breadfruit and sweet potato could produce lots of food and an abundance of food. The taro plant is special to us because it's linked to our creation story. And Hawaiians just developed a taste for taro and poi. And so they developed complex irrigation systems and terracing systems that allowed us to pick the choicest cultivars and grow them so that we could have our preferred varieties of taro and have this very important, nutritious, fermented food as our staple in our diet. Are these traditional Hawaiian foods typically served in schools and in institutions on Hawaii? Absolutely not. I think the accessibility to taro especially, but really all of our traditional foods, it has become so difficult because of the shift in the way that we did or, or do agricultural over the past 120, 130 years. Once our waterways were dried up and diverted for sugar plantations, really we were not able to cultivate these foods at all. And so they've become sort of a specialty item that are very expensive if bought in the stores. So that's kind of another reason why I began my effort to kind of expand our farm is I just wanted people to be able to have access to these foods and also to the seeds for these foods so that they could begin starting their own gardens and farms too. Mm, I think it's a really important mission and a critical undertaking for people to understand their history and their connection to the land. So I did a little research before our interview because I wanted to understand what some of those changes in agriculture were. And I learned that after Western contact in 1778, there were drastic changes because of land ownership and the sugarcane plantation industry. So can you tell me a little bit about what happened 
when the sugarcane industry moved to the islands? Right. So Captain Cook came in 1778, and then there's an influx of foreigners coming to Hawaii, seafarers, the whaling industry, and then Christianity with American missionaries in the mid-1800s. And so ideas about relationships to land and ownership of land had to do with the shift in religious beliefs and spirituality as well. I mentioned that the taro is a part of our creation story in Hawaiian cosmogony the sky and the earth produced this plant, the taro, and this taro plant is the older sibling to the Hawaiian. So we have for us um, this illustration of an interdependence with the land and our food source. But with Christianity, it's a different story and a different belief system. And so I think this allowed for the foreigners to be able to capitalize on their desires to have control over land and water. There's a saying here that the missionaries came to do good, and they did well, indeed. In 1893, the queen was deposed, and it was the children of the original missionaries who committed this act of the overthrow. They had business interests in sugar plantations, and so they were able to politically maneuver themselves to have control over land and water, and basically dispossess Hawaiian nationals from their land base and from their food source as well. Mm, what a shame. And the sugar cane that was produced there, it's my understanding that what happened with the plantation industry was that it allowed many immigrants to come and work on those plantations. But today, there are no plantations left, and most of that sugar production has gone to other countries. What happened to that land? Right. So by the 80s and 90s, sugar wasn't making money anymore, and the plantations started to shut down. But the corporations maintained control of the land and water resources even though they were losing money as they reorganized and many of them reincorporated as water companies or real estate brokerages. And so um, we are seeing the development of land and development of land here in Hawaii is dependent on access to water. So I'm involved in Hui on the Vaiha Water Advocacy Group because once sugar shut down, we said, no, it's time for the restoration of balance of our natural environment, but also the cultural landscape and and the foodscape of Hawaii as well. Mm. Yeah, there's so much indigenous wisdom. Those of us on the mainland, too, see or recognize the value of indigenous foodways and land care, really. And with that same mindset of this interconnection that we should not be trying to dominate nature or own part of it, because we're all interconnected in this web. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you, because I thought that your perspective would be of great interest to our listeners, just to sort of start to try to think a little bit differently about food and water and the earth, especially during this time of crisis with climate change, for example. And I wanted to ask you, in addition to the whole land ownership and management struggles that you face, how has climate change impacted you? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we need to pay attention to. Sea level rise is beginning to take its toll. Many of our roadways are along the coast, and they're already partially in the ocean in some sections. Personally, I've had to deal with on a small farm periods of drought that almost wiped us out last year, actually. We weren't able to water our farm, and luckily I was able to grab some of the seed that was here and take it to our homestead. Otherwise, we would have been wiped out by drought. Yeah, I mean, this is important. We have friends who work in forestry here and conservation stewardship, and they're important partners to the agricultural community here, too. The traditional agricultural system here kept irrigation ditches along the rivers and the streams in order to recharge our aquifers and kept intact the water cycle here. But the sugar plantations for over 100 years were diverting water away from the rivers 
And so our aquifers are at a dangerous level now. And with long periods of drought now, the security of our water is a very concerning issue as well. Mm. Let me take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Lonnie Eckert-Dodd. She is a native Hawaiian mother, farmer, educator, and water rights advocate from Maui, Hawaii. She farms taro and other traditional Hawaiian crops with her family on their farm. And she is also involved with a social justice and environmental justice advocacy group that's involved in an ongoing legal battle to restore the flow of four streams in central Maui. Since we are talking about water, let's talk about what kind of work your advocacy organization is working on to restore water rights. Yeah, during the sugar plantation here in central Maui, we call it politically Nawai'eha, the four waters, they're dried up and the waterways diverted to sugar plantations. So not only did that take away the food source within the river itself, the fish and the limpet, but it meant that the connectivity between the mountain and the sea was broken, which affects estuaries and nearshore fisheries. And so the food source in the ocean was affected as well. So when sugar started to decline, a group of us organized and decided it was a good political time to push back and ask the state of Hawaii to protect the public trust doctrine as it relates to water and the water code and water rights. And written into state law is that water should be put to the best and highest use. And so we challenged the corporations maintaining control and boarding water and ask for the streams to be restored. So this started around 2002 and our contested case is ongoing. We're still waiting for a final ruling of our contested case. In 2014, I believe, the four streams were allotted an interim stream flow standard where in the meantime, while the case was ongoing, the streams had to maintain a certain amount of flow but we are still waiting for a final ruling so that the right of the rivers to flow and the right of traditional farmers along the rivers can finally be adjudicated and recognized legally. Mm. I'm so glad you're doing this work. I'm sure it's not easy, and there's probably a lot of political money and that idea of dominance, again, that, that you're struggling and fighting against. But for the sake of future generations and the freedom to have access to water. I think this work that you're doing is so important. I'll provide a link to that website so that people can understand more about the struggles that you're facing and how critical water management is or the freedom to have access to that water. So now we're facing another crisis. I mean, on top of climate change, which was always seen as this is the existential threat that we're facing as a people. And now we've got this pandemic that we're dealing with globally and shifting a bit of the food on the islands. So tell me how COVID has impacted your community specifically. Yeah, I mean, back in March and April, it was quite frightening. There was a real fear that the ships would not be able to come into port. And overnight, all of the shelves and all of the supermarkets were bare. I'm not sure if the listeners are aware, but in Hawaii, we are almost completely dependent on foreign imports for food. I think it's between 90 and 95 percent. Mm. And so hunger and starvation, not really knowing you know, what was going to happen globally in this pandemic and how it was going to affect us, it, it became very a very, very real threat our survival here in Hawaii. So has that shifted some of the thinking about maybe restoring some agricultural lands and bringing back the foodways that people... You know, as a, yeah, as a farmer and a political advocate, advocate, I was excited about that. Like, oh, wow, okay, people are really are going to be able to recognize what we've been talking about and fighting for. But I really have not seen that much of a shift or as much as I would have liked to see in a shift in attitudes and behavior 
we have become, I think, so dependent on tourism and so dependent on real estate development and the dollars that drive those economies. Mm. I think it's hard for people to even consider to bite the hand that feeds them, in a sense. But in another sense, there have been smaller grassroots efforts, friends like Autumn, Mm -hmm. Ray Ness that you know are involved in these food hubs. Um, these are the kinds of things that we've been talking about and dreaming about. But when COVID hit, it motivated a lot of us to push these initiatives forward. Mm -hmm. So not happening as quickly. <laughs> the revolution's not happening as quickly as I'd like it to. But we're seeing some some changes. Well, I think we've had a real cold slap in the face with regard to our agricultural and food systems. And if there's a silver lining to this pandemic, may it be that we rethink how we produce our food and have a great deal more respect for understanding how to grow truly good food. And I want to get back to the immersion school that you've got on your land and bringing children on to learn some of their heritage and that you also have a seed bank. Tell me about that. Yeah, so my sons attend a school called Kikulo Pi'ilani, and it's a small, independent Hawaiian language and culture immersion school, the first of its kind, actually. And the school model integrates the academics and brings in teachers who are cultural practitioners. And so I get to be the agriculture teacher. They also learn pula. They also learn how to do traditional weaving and art. And so math and science and language arts are kind of incorporated into our cultural practices. But more than that, I feel like my work at the farm with the children is really about cultivating relationships. Mm. So we teach the cosmogony of the Hawaiian people and we utilize poetry and prayers in our work to teach values. I truly believe that enduring stable relationships help us develop confidence, give us a sense of safety and security. And for Hawaiian, the Aina or the land is kin. So if we have that relationship, we don't ever really feel alone. Mm -hmm. So the acts of tilling, planting, weeding are spiritual ones that allow us to connect with our ancestors. And when we work in unity with each other and harmony with nature, we are with our ancestors and we realize that we've been left the infrastructure to produce abundant amounts of food so we can take care of each other. Mm. Do you think that islanders are waking up to the fact that being so dependent on such a large percentage of imports is crucial to changing the way agriculture is done in Hawaii? I mean, you see the problem. You see the crisis. Do you think that there's been an awakening? I think for the Native Hawaiian community, it's been an easier shift because of our cultural and spiritual beliefs. But we also are dealing with the long-term effects of colonization. <laughs> and so changing people's minds and habits is difficult. I'm not sure. There's a lot of talk about wanting to increase our food production locally, but it's not backed up by policy yet. And so there's a lot of work to be done on that end. I'm more of a grassroots effort kind of a person, so I like to think that lots of small efforts like mine to be involved with schools on the ground really sets up the next generation to make the moves it'll take to make the real change happen. Right, and once children learn of those critical connections, then it becomes more second nature. And I think it's so great that you're working with children. You mentioned that the school is a private school. How much do you think you might be able to bring these kinds of activities into the public schools? Yeah, there's, there is a movement in the public school system as well, working in tandem with, with us or us with them. They're small schools within schools. And so I think that if we can get our school lunch program linked up with farmers, it's a nice way to kind of illustrate what we're capable of. And there have been some groups like the Farmers Union who have been trying to make those moves politically to make that happen. Because right now, most of our schools 
uh, public schools are eating food that are shipped in in frozen boxes mm. because the food has to be certified by the USDA. Oh, yeah. I am aware through Autumn Ness's work trying to stop some of the pesticide spraying that Monsanto slash Bayer and other large-scale industrial agrochemical businesses do a lot of testing on Hawaii, and I wonder if you've had any problems with water contamination and any chemical drift on your farm. Yeah, I'm not next to any of those large corporations. My mom actually lives right next door to a Monsanto farm, so I'm always concerned about the drift coming into her neighborhood, and there have been several children who have birth defects that seem to be clearly linked to that problem. The farm here is in an agricultural subdivision. We're on a four-acre lot. The lot above us uses a lot of pesticides, Roundup to spray on weeds right up to the border of our farm. So we've had to utilize swales and berms and planting plants that could help us filter through some of those things and divert them around uh, the border of the farm. But I'm also dealing with farmland that has been used by the pineapple industry for decades before me. So I'm cleaning up tons of plastics as well. Mm. Oh my gosh. You know, we just have a couple of minutes. So I want to ask you if there's anything that you want to share with our listeners that I might not have brought forth in our conversation. Yeah, you know, when most people think of Hawaii, it probably conjures images of a tropical paradise because Hawaii is beautiful. Our islands and our people are beautiful. But what I think is important to say and for people to know and acknowledge is that Hawaii is suffering, that Hawaii continues to suffer in part due to American colonialism. Our food sovereignty is tied to our political sovereignty, and the health of our community is tied to the health of our land. Colonization and exploitation are not only like historical traumas, but they're ongoing. So issues of reliance on food imports, the cultural and environmental degradation that we're experiencing, the poisoning of our air, our land, and our water with pesticides and plastics, All of these things are tied to the uncomfortable truth that America is involved in the ongoing illegal occupation of Hawaii. Um, I think you said you've been to Hawaii a few times, so you're probably familiar with the term aloha. We use it here to greet each other and to express love. You know, aloha is the warmth that you feel when you come here. And aloha has taken our music and our hula and our friendships across the globe, but what I hope is that when people hear the truth about Hawaii and acknowledge the truth about Hawaii, that some of that aloha will be returned and reflected upon us. Really, it's time for Hawaii to heal, and we're ready, and we're capable of feeding ourselves, and we're preparing our children in order to resume our role as stewards of our home. Mm-hmm. That's a really important message. You describe it in terms of aloha aina, is that right? Love of the land, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yep, that's right. So aloha is this expression of love and humility and oneness. And then aina means land, but it really means that which feeds. So aloha aina is an expression of love for our land, an expression of our nationalism and our national pride, but really the value of caring for the place that literally allows you to survive and feeds you. Thank you so much, Lonnie, for being my guest today. Well, as I mentioned, I will provide a link to your farm website as well as to the advocacy organization that speaks about the critical nature of water. You have a wonderful historical list of things that have happened over the course of time that anybody who visits Hawaii, I think it would be beneficial to learn more about the history of where they're going. So not taking the food and water for granted and the land. We've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Lani Eckhart-Dodd. She is a native Hawaiian mother, farmer, educator, and water rights advocate from Maui, Hawaii, where she farms taro and other traditional Hawaiian crops with her family on their farm. I'll provide a link to that. And thank you, too, for your dedication to preserving those connections to land and water and our spiritual and mental, physical health. Thank you so much, Lani. Aloha, mahalo. Aloha. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Rob Fox. He owns and operates the Genuine Fox Farm near Tripola, Iowa, with his partner Tammy, where they grow a wide variety of produce and raise poultry for local sales. They are committed to sustainable growing practices and have maintained organic certification since 2007. Dr. Fox also is the Pesticide Action Network's Communications Associate for Iowa, joining that organization in 2020. Dr. Fox earned a doctoral degree in computer science as well as adult education and has worked as a software engineer and post-secondary educator in the field of computer science. But we're going to focus on his organic farming methods today and a fantastic article that caught my attention titled Living a Dicamba Nightmare. Welcome, Rob. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm curious first to ask how you became interested in organic farming. You had a solid career in computer science and adult education. How did you go from that field to farming? (laughs) Well, it's not as if I trained for that specifically, I guess, if you look at my education. Basically, we have a family where both of us have PhDs and both of us wanted to teach at a small college. And you can't necessarily find two jobs at the same location. So I initially had a job in computer science teaching, and then my lovely bride got a job at our current location, and I followed, and we needed something for me to do, and we had been gardeners prior to this point, and we felt like local foods needed a little bit more help in the area. So that's that's what got us started. So did you have this farm in the family, or did you buy it? farm that we have, we actually purchased the farm, at least a section of it. Most of the land was carved off of it, which is pretty common in Iowa. So we have 15 acres, which is certainly enough to get yourself into trouble and have plenty to do. Well, I thought it was interesting because you have set up a CSA, and we'll talk about some of the transitions that you've had to face just because of the challenges that our society has brought forth to many farmers. But on 15 acres, how many families have you been able to feed? Yeah, 15 acres doesn't seem like much, but our CSA program was able to do 120 families, some of which would actually split a share because we would give them more than they could use. In one season, we have been able to produce anywhere from 15 to 17 tons of food, and that would include both vegetables, fruits, and livestock. Wow. And this is so exciting because we know that local food is going to be the freshest and involve the least amount of fossil fuel in terms of transporting it distance-wise. So this is all promising. Now, you went from having 40 crops, you transitioned to 25. Why did you make that shift? We made the shift to fewer vegetable crops in part because we were watching demand for our CSA program decline, and we were not able to recover that demand, so we were looking for other places to sell. You know, we wanted to continue to grow, so we were looking for other places to sell, and if I wanted to sell, say, an institution like a school, often they wanted more of specific crops. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to focus on things we could sell in larger amounts, and I'll also be honest, this is a hard job, and it's extremely hard to grow 40 different crops and do them all well. You have to expect some of them to do poorly every single season. 
Right. Uh, so in some ways, it was it was a way to try and continue to do the work and continue to stay positive about it, which is hard to do. Uh, one of the things a good friend of mine says about farming is, is if you don't fail frequently, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah, that's great. Well, there are a lot of lessons to be learned with failures. That's true. I'm curious about your experience with your CSA shares in that you saw a decline in demand. What do you think was the root cause of that? I think that there are two causes to this, and one would be more of a personal individual business thing, that every small business that's a family business goes through a cycle of normal promotion. You build up to a certain size. And then people who are in the program are either aging out or their life is changing and they move on. And so there's going to be natural ebbs and flows. But I think the other thing was the larger issue that uh, CSA was, when we started, the hot topic. That was the way you could support local foods is join a CSA. That is no longer the word on the street. So it takes a lot more effort, a lot more motivation to get people to join it because, frankly, CSA is somewhat inconvenient. It's not as easy as going to the store and picking up the five things you want and leaving whenever you want to go to the store. Mm-hmm. And we should just let our listeners know that CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and it involves the person who joins to pay up front and then you help the farmer then with his immediate costs, and then you reap the benefits through the harvest throughout the season. What I have noticed in my rural communities and what has happened to many of the farmers at my local market is that the pandemic actually drove CSA demand. You know, people wanted to sign up. They wanted to make sure that they were going to have access to local food because the markets had shifted. And things weren't available in the grocery store as they had always expected. Yeah, that, that is correct. We saw that in Iowa as well. Unfortunately for our farm, we had already made the decision to move away from the CSA this season. That, that was something we decided in the early winter months last year. So it wasn't going to be something that our farm in particular was going to, to see, unlike other farms. Right. Uh, we did something a little different. We did something called uh, farm credits where we let people buy a certain amount of credit toward purchasing. But frankly, we were already moving out from the system, so we did not benefit from that. Yeah. And I, I think one thing I wanted to say is what I'm worried about is because I have many friends who are CSA farmers. I am worried that a number of these people will now feel like there isn't an issue with the food supply chain and leave these farmers who are thinking, hey, look, I haven't been able to support now 150 families. And I would hate to see half of them decide not to come back next year. Yeah. Well, I think the magic in having access to local food is in the taste of the food. And so if you've had, maybe you've been going to the grocery store and you haven't been able to get what you want, so you suddenly start buying from a local farmer and you, you realize, oh my gosh, the taste is so much better when it's local, and some would argue local and organic, that maybe, and hopefully, this will push a trend towards more and smaller farms. I don't know. The future is is left (laughs) to see. But the other issue that you brought up with regard to the pandemic is that you found that it was harder to have help on the farm. And I, I don't know that that's something that people might consider, but when you've got farm labor and you've got a pandemic, you've got to take extra special precautions. Tell me what that was like for you. That is entirely correct. That Farm labor is actually the biggest variable for small farms and especially uh, diverse production. We have to have a lot more help to get everything done. I mean, just think about it this way. If, if I grew two vegetable crops you can do all kinds of things with mechanical equipment to get things done. You grow 20, now suddenly all of them have their own needs. They all get harvested at different times. You just can't do it yourself and you can't mechanize it all. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's an issue. And what ended up happening for us is most of our labor are high school students or college age students who work for us during the, the summer months primarily. And pretty much they were not available to us. So our labor went from having 
three people typically to just myself and Tammy, and even our time was cut short. So that kind of put us at about 25% amount of labor hours we'd had in prior years. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point with regard to skill sets. So if you started out with 40 crops, then you need 40 different skill sets, really, or knowledge in growing those 40 different crops. And even with 25 crops, that is a lot of skill. And I think it's important for us to remember really what goes into farming. And I'm curious, too, because on top of the crops that you grow, you also have been able to maintain an organic certification, which is, again, another layer of work. What was it that made you decide to become organic and stick with it? Well, certified organic is is something that we believed in even before we started growing for others when we were just doing our own gardening. And a lot of it has to do with a few particular points. I mean, the first of which is we believe in diversity. And I don't just mean diversity of critters on the farm or diversity of crops. I just mean the whole ecosystem diversity. If you have diversity, you have health. And I particularly like the idea of using nature's services as opposed to trying to pretend that I know better than nature does. We love supporting our pollinators, for example. So those are two of the big things. But I think the biggest thing for me is we get an awful lot of personal satisfaction and our well-being on the farm comes from walking in fields that we like to be in. And I'll tell you, I like being in a field, of course, where the crops are doing well, but I also like seeing butterflies and insects and frogs and toads and flowers. This is all something that goes hand in hand with the certified organic system if we take it to its ultimate conclusion. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious, with your background being not in biology, where did you learn that biodiversity was so critical for sustainability? You know, uh, part of the learning comes from just being involved in the growing. Uh, and I know that that's not the full answer because, of course, I did my share of reading. I asked plenty of people who had more knowledge and experience than I do. There was a lot of conversation that was had. But the biggest lessons almost always come from being outside, doing the work, getting off the tractor or, or, or whatever, and walking and observing. And I can't tell you how many times we saw things that told us, you know what, if you work with nature, you're going to have more benefits than if you work against it. Yeah. The question is, of course, how do you work with nature? That's a difficult question. Right. And it's probably very much region-specific. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. It's not just region-specific either. It can be soil-specific. It can be topography, as in, you know, do you have hills or is it flat ground? And what else surrounds you? What kinds of trees are there? What kinds of water sources are there? Uh, our ground, for example, is very flat, and there's no place for water to go, and our soils are heavy. So during a year where we get extra rainfall, we have to fight a little bit. Uh, in a year where, like this year where it was drier, it's a perfect year for us. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to talk about climate, but before we leave the biodiversity topic, I want to bring forth something that you had you had presented at an Iowa farming conference, and that was what happens when you bring in pollinators and what that does to food production. So you tell a story where you planted one-third less melon seeds, but you ended up getting one-third more melons. How did that happen? Yeah, this is one of my favorite success stories for our farm. Uh, You know, we were growing melons as one of our crops, and we like to grow different kinds of melons, so we have variety for our customers. Uh, But pretty much we focused on growing the cash crop, get the melons into this much space, grow this many plants, and get the production you need. Um, We maybe would put flowers on the edges of the field and leave it at that. And one year I decided, you know what, we know that melons need pollinators if you want melons. So let's, let's do an experiment, and it was pretty bold. 
I said, I'm going to use one-third of the space that I usually use for melon plants for flowers. Uh, flowers like zinnias, flowers like calendula, uh, some buckwheat. We had some basil flowering in there and a plant called borage. And so we used one-third of the space for pollinator support, thinking, well, if we lose one-third of the production, I, I, at least I will be a field I like to be in and I'll be happy. <laughs> uh, but we actually ended up with 30% more melon production that year than we'd had in prior seasons. So it was a nice affirmation that, yes, if you can find a way to support nature in what you're doing, then you're going to get more production. I will also say that I loved being in that field, but there were a few things that were a little harder for me to do. So I can understand why people sometimes hesitate to do these things, but in my point of view, it was worth every little bit of inconvenience I might have had. Yeah, that's a really great story to prove the power of pollinators. Let me take one break because we are halfway through, and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Rob Fox. He is the owner and operator of the organic, genuine fox farm near Tripola, Iowa. So getting back to why I called you in the first place was because of your work with the Pesticide Action Network and your communication work and a post that you wrote titled Living a Dicamba Nightmare. And as I explain to many farmers, I feel that we work in partnership. You produce the foods that I recommend to my clients to promote their health. Everybody wants to prevent cancer, heart disease, inflammation. How do we do that? Well, in part, we do that with a really healthy diet that's high in antioxidants, anti-inflammatory compounds. In other words, just the fruits and vegetables that you are producing on your farm. But we've got a problem, and that has to do with dicamba drift. Tell me about that. Yeah, dicamba is an interesting chemical. It's, it's an herbicide, so it's used to control weeds, and it's used in all kinds of row crops in Iowa. I think you'll find that it's used for a lot of our corn. It's, it's used for various other crops, but in particular, it has been used since 2016-2017 for corn and soybeans after they've emerged from the ground. So we have leaves out there, and you're driving a spray rig over them, and you're applying dicamba on those plants at that point in time. The problem is, is that that means we're spraying this chemical when temperatures are getting warmer and conditions are perfect for a problem that's called volatilization. In other words, it becomes a vapor after it's been applied properly to the plants and it becomes that vapor as much as four days after application, and it can rise up and it can move as far as a half mile or more away from the target site. So what ends up happening is now you get this chemical on non-target plants, such as plants on our farm. And you lost how many rows of multicolored peppers? Well, here's the, the worst part about all of this. Dicamba is what's called a growth inhibitor. So it doesn't necessarily kill the plant outright. What it does is you'll notice your plant looks healthy, and then when it tries to put out some new leaves, they'll be small, they won't fill out all the way, and of course if it has any fruits, it tends to drop those or it'll drop the flowers. So in the past, we would harvest between 750 pounds of bell peppers a season, and in 2017 through 2019, we averaged about 30 pounds. Oh my. So that's, that's about 800-pound average versus a 30-pound average as a result of drift from dicamba. And that's just one of our crops. It also affects tomatoes and the other wonderful fruits and vegetables that you were growing. Do you have a dollar value in terms of how much you lost? Well, I'll just put it in perspective. Typically, I would be selling, if I were selling in bulk certified organic bell peppers, I could sell that between a dollar fifty to two dollars a pound. So you could say maybe that's sixteen hundred dollars a year just for bell peppers. And if you consider that we also grow other sweet peppers at about the same amount of poundage, 
for about the same price, you can begin to get an idea just for one small blind what the loss could look like. Mm. And what are your options? Well, I have, we're actually doing a couple of things to address this. But again, part of the issue here is that I'm being forced to address something that I'm not sure I should have to be forced to address. Right. One example that we're doing is we have two high tunnels. These are plastic-covered buildings that we can grow inside. So we've been moving our pepper production inside those buildings, but there's a limited amount of space in there, and we have other crops we want to grow in there as well. So we have found that peppers will grow just fine in there because they're apparently protected enough, but at the same time, our field peppers will struggle. So that's one thing we're doing. The other thing we're doing is we're starting to move away from growing peppers or any produce for fresh eating. We're starting to look at just growing for seed production and moving away from producing food for people. That's tragic. It seems to me that there should be a legal course of action. We have corporations that are making money from the sale of the genetically resistant crops and from the herbicide, both. And yet we have farmers who are contributing to public health being forced to change what they grow. And it's not just the amount of money that you've lost on the sale of your crop. It's the health consequences of the people in your community who no longer have access to your health-promoting food. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think what's incredibly disheartening for me is the fact that as a person who grew up in Iowa, one of the things I grew up believing, and I think I was was taught this, is that people in Iowa look out for each other. We're good neighbors. Mm. That's what I was taught. And the whole premise of using a chemical that was known when Monsanto first developed the seeds that were resistant to dicamba, they knew and they were expecting that there would be issues and, in fact, prepared for it. And, in fact, this information was discovered when the Bader Farms, the, the peach orchards down in uh, southern Missouri, sued. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they uncovered the fact that Monsanto was had knowledge. They expected to have complaints, but they still pursued registration of the product. It was still allowed. It's, they still promote the product, and they continue now as Bayer, because Monsanto was purchased by Bayer, they continue now to push the product because it's it's a big moneymaker. This is the way they try and maintain their their sales. Right. So it, it's discouraging. It's difficult. Nonetheless, we're still trying to do things uh, to, to prevent its use and to fight the re-registration of the product. Well, I was glad to see that the Bader Farms that lost so much, they lost hundreds of thousands of production of peaches. I was glad to see that they won in the courts. And I would like to hope that we see more lawsuits putting an end to the use of this herbicide. Now, I noticed that you were trained as a drift catcher in 2015. Tell me how you came to be trained in that and what you found. Are you measuring dicamba specifically or are you catching other other chemicals as well? Well, I'm glad you picked that up. Yeah, I, I was first introduced to Pesticide Action Network, at least more directly, when they sponsored the drift catching program for some interested farmers in the state of Iowa. And I was one of those who volunteered to do that. Its purpose at the time was more for the insecticide and fungicide spraying that typically happens the end of July in Iowa. Otherwise, so it would not be checking for dicamba in this particular case. It was checking for more of those kinds of pesticides. And it basically meant that we spent time during spray season twice a day going out and taking these little test tubes with the resins in them out, properly storing them in a freezer, keeping records, and then when you got a certain amount, you'd send them in. One of the amazing things that we found, I, I don't know if you've discussed corpyrifos before in this program, but mm-hmm. that's a, it's a well-known pesticide. We actually recorded an amount 
that came from a spraying that was a mile plus away from us on a day when the winds were heading our direction at less than five miles an hour. Wow. So keep that in your head. One plus mile away, five mile an hour peak wind speed in our direction, and we were actually able to register amounts that were too high if you had a child less than a year old and they had constant exposure to it. Uh, exactly. Yeah, we have covered that topic because it, it harms children's brains. And we came so close to banning its use in the last administration, and I'm hoping we will revisit that topic. There is n- any chemical that harms a child's brain. It seems like a no-brainer to want to ban it. But again, the idea that somebody could be making money from something was more important. Well, you now write and communicate for the Pesticide Action Network of North America. You are based in Iowa, so I'm assuming you have a lot of these kinds of stories in your posts. And I want to direct people to that website. It's simply org. But Rob, I want to just give you a chance. We have a couple of minutes left. Do you want to share anything more specifically about anything that we've brought up or something I might have neglected to address? Yeah, I, I was kind of hoping to mention a couple things about why in particular I am so concerned about drifts. And just to keep it perfectly real here, I just want to talk about it from the perspective of just one small farm. I'm worried about the use of chemicals that don't stay on target for multiple reasons, one of which is worker safety, because, hey, I work this farm, I'm outside all the time. If it's a nice day for spraying, it's probably a nice day for me to work out there. But also, I tend to hire people who are high school students, college students, your kids, and I will not uh, allow them to stay out in the field if it looks like we're going to have chemicals drifting on the farm. It's a worker safety thing, but it's not just worker safety, it's food safety. The chemicals that are being sprayed in the fields next to to my farm are not rated for you to eat. So if they don't stay where they're supposed to stay, the only thing that I can do is if I suspect that these crops have been drifted on, I have to destroy the crop because I will not give you unsafe foods. This is what a local food producer will do is that they'll grow the food, and if they're not sure that it's safe for you, they destroy it because they're interested in your safety. So just looking at it from those two perspectives, chemical drift, off-target applications, it's about the safety of human beings, and I don't think it should be about something else. If we can't manage to keep the chemicals on target, then maybe we need to stop using them altogether. I couldn't agree more. Well, Rob, we're going to have to close because we are out of time, but I want to thank you very much for your work. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Rob Fox. He is the owner and operator of the Genuine Fox Farm near Tripola, Iowa, where he farms with his partner, Tammy, where they grow and sell a wide variety of produce and also raise poultry for local eaters. Thank you so much for your work and for being my guest. Thank you for the chance to speak with you.
en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM Hoy miércoles 20 de enero del 2021 Se han recogido